Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. President Donald Trump campaigned for the presidency on the promise he would overturn the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Unable to pass its repeal in Congress, Trump rolled back a key element of the ACA, federal subsidies aiding low-income recipients of Obamacare. He also walked back a mandate that kept employers from barring employees from accessing contraception through employer-based health care plans. In response to this one-two punch to the ACA, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro filed a pair of lawsuits against the administration. Attorney General Shapiro joins us on the line. General Shapiro, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be on with you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, let's take these two suits uh, one at a time. Why did you and other attorneys general file suit against President Trump's decision to stop cost-sharing payments? Well, that's an issue that affects, <clears throat> excuse me, more than 426,000 Pennsylvanians. And these are Pennsylvanians who work, low-income Pennsylvanians who work day in uh, and day out. Um, They buy individual plans uh, through what is known as the exchanges. Uh, And the manner in which those cost-sharing payments were taken away, we think, violates the law. The effect of taking away those payments has already been felt. Um, As you're seeing, the cost of insurance those 400,000 individuals actually skyrocket here in Pennsylvania. We're reading today in the newspapers, and I know you guys are covering um, on NPR, um, these cost increases. One, you know, you can see health options plan, uh, which would have increased at 7.9% as a result of these subsidies going away, increased to 41.1%. And that has an effect on the entire marketplace. Um, it's bad for Pennsylvania. It's bad for consumers. And again, these are individuals who are going out and working and trying to make their way, trying to afford their health care, trying to afford the grocery bills, trying to afford the mortgage. Uh, and this action by the Trump administration will undermine their interest and is also unlawful. Well, we're going to talk about that unlawful part, but uh, just wanted to add to the numbers that uh, you, you were quoting. Uh, just yesterday, the uh, rates for Pennsylvania for the exchanges were released, or at least uh, officially released. And uh, you can see that uh, I think the average was over 30 percent. And as you mentioned, it was supposed to be, before this action taken by the Trump administration, 7.8 percent would be the average price increase or premium increase that uh, Pennsylvanians would have seen. Now, let's talk about the law. Uh, the administration claims that these cost-sharing uh, plans were illegal. A quote from the White House, based on guidance from the Department of Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services has concluded that there was no appropriation for cost-sharing reduction payments to insurance companies under Obamacare. Now, the White House also said, in light of this analysis, the government cannot lawfully make the cost-sharing reduction payments. Your response to that? I think the White House is wrong, and I think they have a track record of getting their legal analysis wrong time and time again. By stopping these subsidies unilaterally and immediately the way President Trump did, he acted arbitrarily and he acted capriciously, and he acted in violation of his legal responsibilities 
under the Affordable Care Act and specifically under the Administrative Procedures Act. The Affordable Care Act actually states that U.S. Department of Health and Human Services shall make these cost-sharing payments, uh, cost-sharing subsidy payments, excuse me. And I also believe that through the president's ongoing efforts to sabotage the Affordable Care Act, something that he seems actually proud to do, he has failed in his constitutional obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. You know, he may not like the law, and there may be many Pennsylvanians who don't like the law. And to be sure, the law needs to be reformed. It needs to be fixed. It needs to address some of its shortcomings. But the president, just because of that belief, simply can't violate the law. He needs to go do the hard work with Congress to reform the law in the way that he sees fit. Now, let's talk about uh, the Congress part of this. Uh, What they said in that statement is that there is no appropriation for cost-sharing reductions, so that that makes them, uh, in, in turn, illegal. What about that? I just think that's the wrong legal analysis here. Um, And again, the the members of Congress, uh, and thankfully I'm not there, (laughs) you know, dealing with this. But I mean, it makes your head spin. These guys literally can't do their job. They believe in something. They should go and actually fight for that and do the hard work to have something different. Instead, they're just distracting uh, and, you know, making noise elsewhere to get the American people to focus on something else. Uh, but in fact, what I think the American people are focused on, and certainly what we're focused on in the Office of Attorney General, is making sure people follow the law and, you know, making sure that health care uh, is available and accessible at reasonable rates. And what you're seeing here is because of the president's unlawful actions, uh, health care for many Pennsylvanians, uh, those costs are skyrocketing. As you mentioned, uh, the president has not tried to hide that he wants to kill Obamacare. Here's something he had to say yesterday. As we meet, Republicans are meeting with Democrats because of what I did with the CSRs, because I cut off the gravy train. If I didn't cut the CSRs, they wouldn't be meeting. They'd be having lunch and enjoying themselves, all right? They're right now having emergency meetings to get a short-term fix of health care where premiums don't have to double and triple every year like they've been doing under Obamacare. Because Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone. It's no longer, don't, you shouldn't even mention, it's gone. There is no such thing as Obamacare anymore. So, General Shapiro, when you hear something like that, and I'm thinking of it from a legal point of view, right. does that actually help your case, what the president just said there? Yeah, Absolutely. First off, I mean, the president's rhetoric on so many things is just so unbelievably irresponsible. But he proves my point, right? I mean, he is making it clear that uh, he is personally committed to sabotaging the law of the land, the Affordable Care Act, uh, to meet his own goals. Now, listen, it is firmly within his court and the Congress's court to amend the law. And it may not, at the end of the day, be something I like. But my job as your attorney general is not to opine on things I like or dislike. My job is to make sure that everyone, including the president of the United States, follows the law. And in this case, they did not. And again, the president has a long track record uh, of not following the law, of trying to take a shortcut to a policy outcome that he wishes for. He won. His party won control of Congress. Instead of making 
uh, outlandish statements like he made that you just played. They should roll up their shirt sleeves and do the hard work necessary to fulfill the outcome that they want. Let's have an honest policy discussion in this country. Let's not continue to violate the rule of law as this president routinely does. Well, the president would probably say that, okay, uh, they did, the Congress did work on, well, what they called the repeal and replace, but uh, that it didn't happen. The, the Congress just couldn't come to an agreement. Now, the argument can be made it didn't come to the agreement that the president wanted or that the Republican majority wanted. But th- th- this seems like w- what he's doing is forcing Congress's hand. Right, but it doesn't give him license to violate the rule of law just because he couldn't whip his party into shape to get him to do what he wanted. I mean, that is, uh, you know, take that to its logical conclusion. That means any president who gets frustrated by the lack of uh, responsiveness or action in Congress can just take the law into his own hands. No, Uh, our republic is uh, founded on um, the rule of law, and it is my job as a state attorney general to ensure everyone follows the law, whether it's a dealer on the street corner, some multinational corporation, or even the president of the United States. Earlier this month, the Trump administration announced that uh, more employers will not have to cover contraceptives in their insurance plans that they offer. You filed suit against that uh, with a number other a number of other attorneys general. Why? The Trump administration again broke the law and undermined the health and economic independence of women in Pennsylvania and across the United States. In a nutshell, his administration made it possible for employers to deny women access to basic medical care in violation of the federal law. He issued two new rules that together allow any company, including publicly traded large for-profit companies, to deny women insurance coverage for basic medically needed contraceptive care under either what's called a religious exemption or even a moral exemption uh, or exception. And I believe this is a reckless and unlawful expansion of a prior, you know, very narrow, narrowly tailored rule. It violates federal law, which requires insurance companies to cover preventative health care services with no copay. Now, it's important for your listeners to know that 50% of women who access contraceptive care do so, do so for medical reasons that have nothing to do with birth control. And I recognize that there are, you know, very strong opinions on both sides of the aisle as it relates uh, to birth control. I obviously have my opinion that it should be uh, accessible. But this is also a public health issue for so many women. And it's also an, an issue of cost. There are two and a half million Pennsylvania women and their families who are now affected by the president's unlawful decision who are going to have to pay more for basic health care. You know, before the Affordable Care Act, this mandate existed, one in three women struggled to afford birth control. Today, as a result of this, that number is less than 4%. And with an average cost of about $1,200 for women to pay for uh, contraceptive care prior to the Affordable Care Act, you're putting an undue hardship from a health perspective and from a cost perspective on Pennsylvania women and on American women. And we're not going to stand for it. Mm. We are going to, we've sued, and we're hopeful that uh, we will prevail in court 
uh, and protect this mandate for women here in Pennsylvania and across the United States. So just to clarify, again, what part of the law are you basing your suit on when it comes to contraception? Sure. Um, Let's sort of look at it in three different parts, because we think the president violated the law in uh, three different ways. First, it violates the Fifth Amendment due process clause and denies women equal protection under the law. Um, Second, it violates the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, and violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. What it it also violates, and this may not be as sexy, but it's a really important part uh, of the law, is something called the Administrative Procedures Act. And let me just kind of summarize that for you in a nutshell. Any president can go out and try and promulgate new rules. But you have to file, follow a process, which is basically four parts. Number one, you have to state that you're going to put forth a new rule. Number two, you have to actually publish that new rule. Number three, there has to be time for public comment on that rule. And then fourth, it gets formally adopted. Well, the president just went to step four and ignored the first three steps and violates the Administrative Procedures Act. So for all of those reasons, um, the president violated the law. And again, I recognize there are strong feelings about the Affordable Care Act. There are strong feelings about contraceptive, you know, access to contraception for women. And I'm not denying people those feelings. I respect people on both sides of this policy debate. But this isn't right now about policy. I'm going to leave that up to Congress and the president. This is about following the rule of law. And the president, again, has failed to do that by virtue of this action. I'm curious, the establishment clause of the Constitution uh, that says that Congress shall establish no religion, uh, how does that fit into this? So uh, effectively what you're doing is you're allowing a CEO or a board of directors to elevate their religious or moral views above that of the rights of women uh, in this commonwealth and, and in this country. And the manner in which this you know, president's action allows that to occur, uh, I believe, violates women's constitutional rights. Governor Tom Wolf is asking the state legislature in response to uh, the Trump administration announcement uh, to pass a law. He's asking the legislature to pass a law that would mandate contraceptives are paid for. Would that preclude your your part in uh, the lawsuit here in Pennsylvania? Well, it certainly would protect women in Pennsylvania. And I, I want to be very clear, Scott. I mean, I'm a law enforcer, not a lawmaker. So I'll leave it up to the governor and to the state lawmakers to determine whether or not uh, that's something they're going to do here in Pennsylvania. But it it certainly would go a long way toward protecting uh, women here in the Commonwealth to ensure that they have access to contraceptive care. So you wouldn't withdraw your part of the suit if the legislature were to pass this? I would not. Okay. Uh, I want to play a, a, a caller, some audio general from a caller we had uh, on our, our show yesterday. It seems like every other day you're going to have all the different states' attorneys generals challenging the government on some grounds, whether it's migration, immigration, flight status, you know, whatever it would be. Now I've heard a bunch of them are going to challenge him on this, that they just can't, you know, stop this. And it seems like instead of governing by legislation, you know, we're governing by the court. And General Shapiro, I don't think that caller was complaining. I think he was pointing out that uh, there are a lot of lawsuits out there. Yeah. Why so many court actions? Well, I, 
I actually agree with the caller. I wish we would govern by legislation uh, and legislative activity. I wish Congress would actually do something. These guys go down there. They become captive to the special interests. They become Twitter personalities instead of actually doing their job, the hard work of actually governing. I wish I never had to file a lawsuit uh, against the, the federal government, but no one is above the law. And when the rights and interests of the people of Pennsylvania are impacted, negatively impacted, I've got to stand up for their rights. But, you know, I, I don't take any pleasure uh, in suing the president. Um, I would point out that there are, you know, because I'm sure some of your listeners are saying, well, of course, you know, you didn't support the president. Of course you want to sue him. I don't. Uh, and yes, while I may not have politically supported this president, I want to see Congress and the president succeed in doing their jobs and in moving our country forward and in following the rule of law. And in this case, they're simply not doing that. And if you look at my track record, I haven't signed on to uh, all of the lawsuits. And those that I've signed on to or initiated, we've won uh, because the president hasn't followed the law. And it is my job to protect the people of Pennsylvania, whether it's from, as I said before, the president of the United States uh, overstepping his bounds, some multinational corporations scamming uh, consumers in Pennsylvania like Equifax or Navient, uh, or even dealers on the street corner um, or pharmaceutical companies or others who are contributing to the heroin and opioid epidemic, which is my top priority. So um, I take no pleasure in this. I, I wish I didn't have to file another lawsuit, uh, but I really wish the president would just follow the rule of law. General, how many lawsuits have you filed against the administration or been part of against the administration or the federal government? You know, there have been um, some have been lawsuits, some have been, you know, other legal actions or letters or what have you. You know, about a dozen or so, I, th I think, at this point. Um, and we could certainly uh, provide a, a full list. I know they're available on my website, attorneygeneral.gov. But, you know, roughly a, a dozen or so, Scott. Is that unprecedented? I mean, obviously, there have been attorneys general file lawsuits against administrations, but this early in an administration, so many lawsuits filed by not just you, but other states as well. Look, I think the president's conduct has really been unprecedented. And, you know, my first week in office, he, you know, I was focused on standing up my organization, getting, uh, you know, getting focused on the heroin epidemic. And the president goes out and puts forth the unlawful travel ban. And uh, we took legal action against him, and he ultimately withdrew it because he realized it was unlawful. Um, you know, a few weeks later, it, you know, he withdrew key elements of the Clean Air Act, which would have returned to the days of smog and pollution in places like Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and Philadelphia. And I mean, we, we sued, and literally within 24 hours, they withdrew uh, their effort because they realized it was unlawful. And the list goes on and on and on. I wish the Trump administration would just simply follow the rule of law, and uh, that would negate our need to file lawsuits. So with the suits, these two that we've discussed today, what happens next? I mean, uh, you know, typically a lawsuit takes a long time to get through the courts. What about these two? Sure. And let me address each of them individually, because they both have a different what's called procedural posture. The, um, the lawsuit that I filed... Um, with regard to contraceptive care, was filed uh, by me on behalf of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in federal court here in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. 
Um, it goes before a federal district court judge um, in the Eastern District, which is in the Philadelphia region. Uh, and we will be, uh, at some point very soon, asking that judge to immediately um, hear our complaint, if you will, and ask for an injunction, basically ask this judge to stop the suspension uh, of access to contraception, contraceptive care. If that judge agrees with it, um, then we would ask that that uh, stop, that injunction, be applied across the country. And you would hope that um, something like that would be resolved within the next few weeks, even though the broader issue uh, may take months, if not years, to wind its way through the courts. As it relates to uh, the cost-sharing payments under the Affordable Care Act, um, that is a lawsuit that I joined with other attorneys general, uh, and that was actually filed by the California Attorney General in the courts in California, um, and it's going through the process there. So each of these different suits has a, has a different posture based on who is filing it and where they're filing it. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. General Shapiro, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on, and I hope I'll be able to come back on and, and talk a little bit about our efforts to combat scans, deal with uh, you know the, the Equifax investigation, and most importantly, talk about my top priority, which is battling the, the heroin and opioid epidemic across oh, the Commonwealth. Always glad to have you on. We'll, we'll schedule it. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The stock market has been on an upward trajectory since March of 2009, 103 straight months of growth. Nothing, no devastating hurricanes, two wars, the uncertainty following the 26th presidential election, nor Brexit. Nothing has slowed the market down. Joining us to discuss this record-breaking trend is Tim Decker, president of ISI Financial Group in Lancaster Mystic. Decker, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm glad to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. The key U.S. averages closed at new record highs to start the week. The Dow Jones Industrials rose 85 points to 22,956. NASDAQ gained 18. The S&P 500 rose 4. After the closing bell, Netflix, the streaming... So that was from yesterday. 22,956 with uh, the Dow Jones Jones Industrial Average. But I woke up this morning and saw a headline online that says, The Irrational Bullishness Continues. Are we seeing something that's irrational? I don't think so. Um, When you go back and you look at the historical, quote, market bubbles of past, that being 2000, when we had the dot-com, and then we had, obviously, in 2007, when the market peaked, October 9th, 2007. When you go back and you look at what those consisted of, the level of euphoria amongst individuals was substantially, substantially more than it is now. I mean, if, if you go back to 1999, if you think about it, taxi cab drivers were talking about stocks. You're getting your hair cut. They're talking about stocks. Nowadays, I have not heard an Uber driver talk about stocks. And ironically, according to Gallup, only about 54% of individuals right now actually own 
stock. So although valuations from a historical perspective are somewhat lofty, the level of what you need to see from a sentiment standpoint just is not there that I don't see an actual, what we would say, euphoria or bubble. Okay, clarify that last part of sure, your statement. Sure, sure. Lofty, but you don't see euphoria. Just clarify sure, a little bit sure, more. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, when you, when you look at, say, the S&P 500 index, which is really a much better barometer right. than the Dow, because the Dow, a lot of people aren't aware of this, is only comprised of 30 companies, okay? But when you look at the historical valuation of the S&P 500 index, the price-to-earnings ratio, when you look ahead based upon forward-looking estimates, has averaged around 16. Right now, it's around 19. Or... Something else that you may hear a lot of is Robert Schiller has a very well-followed price-to-earnings ratio. It's called the CAPE 10. And essentially, all it does is it takes the price-earnings ratio, but they average it over the last 10 years' earnings. And when you look at that, that also is above its average. It's It's at about 31, where historically it's been in the high teens. So we definitely have some higher valuations. And we're going to talk about what's driving this in just a moment. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and we talked before you were on the air today Mm -hmm. about uh, why we wanted to have you on the air and and explain this. When there is upheaval and uncertainty in the news, usually that means that investors investors would be jittery and cautious. But let's face it, we're in a period... That's not exactly tranquil right now. <laughs> uh, possibility of war with North Korea. Yep. Iran nuclear deal not may not be a deal at all. Health care in transition. No one knows where it's going to end up. Tax reform, the Las Vegas shooting. Why hasn't the stock market reacted like it normally has or traditionally has? Remember, someone said the main purpose of the stock market is to make fools of as many men as possible. Another thing to keep in mind is markets, bull markets, love to climb a wall of worry. When you need to be concerned is when everything feels good. Right now, as you said, there are so many things going on and so much uncertainty out there that the markets continue to go up and up. Why? Well, remember, we started March 2009 after we had the Great Recession, and since then, or or if if you go back the valuations at that time after we had gone through about a 57% decline from peak to trough the valuations starting in March of 09 were very very attractive so although news and headlines might drive the market in the short term if you step back and you focus on the forest and don't get caught up in the tr- trees, what it really comes down to is uh, earnings, earnings, earnings. And we have continued to see since '09 that the economy, although it hasn't been surging, has consistently been going up and up and up. So we have seen about a 350% increase since March of '09 in the S&P, which is equal to an annualized of about 19% a year. So, yes, there's things going on out there, but something that I find very interesting, and I think you will as well, imagine October 9th, 2007, and somebody were to tell you 
Over the next several years, we're going to have unemployment go up as high as 10%. We're going to have many financial firms that everyone has heard of go under or be bailed out. We're going to see the worst recession since the Great Depression. And you had a choice. You could invest in stocks, you could invest in gold, you could invest in housing, you could invest in cash, or you could invest in government bonds. Which one would you have taken? Well, most of us, knowing that, would not have invested in stocks. But the beautiful thing is, had you invested in the S&P on October 9th, 07, right before this major, major decline took place, and all those events followed... As of today, your annualized return would have been about 7.2%. So there is the news and there is the economics, but then there are the markets. And in spite of all of the news and what's going on throughout the world, companies continue to grow. And right now, it's not just doing well in the the, uh, U.S., but this is one of the few times that we're actually seeing global growth. Mm -hmm. But still, Tim, let me just push back a little bit in that... uh, uh, Yes, uh, over... You know, we've always heard or been told that uh, uh, if you go into the stock market and you stay for the long haul, that you're going to... You're going to make money. Mm -hmm. You're you're going to... Your investment will will do well. But uh, at the same time... Over the years, when there has been a big event in the news, say, okay, no, granted, this may not be a good example because it did involve the, the global economy, but right. when Greece was having its problems, Spain was having its problems, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, financially. Yep. But even if, uh, you know, there'd be an oil spill in, in the Gulf or something like that. But this time, there hasn't even been a blip, even a short-term blip for the most part. I mean, every once in a while you hear, okay, and I, and I use the Dow Jones because I know we in the sure, media sure. over the it's years. The headline. That's sure. right. That's yep. the headline. Right, sure. But we'll hear the Dow was down 100 points today. Mm-hmm. Next day, it's right back up 150 points. Mm-hmm. So there have been very few blips here. Why not? Well, you've got... Again, you've got earnings, but you also have historically low interest rates as well. Okay, And what we know is if you go back in history, and one of the things that I would urge everyone, everyone, if you want to become a good investor, take some time to look back and understand financial market history. You can learn a lot, and it helps you keep things in perspective, obviously. But when you have a time or you go back and you look at times like now where you have earnings that are consistent and you have such low interest rates, the valuation and what the is is a reasonable or what has been historically a reasonable price to pay for stocks are higher than what they normally have been. So if we go back and we think of recent, you know, we've had had the election. Okay, you had Paul Krugman out there saying, "Oh, the market's going to go to heck in a handbasket." You had Mark Cuban all over the news. Oh, the market's going to go down. Um, well, hasn't hasn't happened. And then we've had Brexit. What happened after that? Oh, the market's got to go down. Markets keep going up and up and up. So it's important. If people really want to think about this, it's important as much as the news is entertaining and there will be short-term events, 
at the end of the day, the engine that drives this thing is earnings, earnings, earnings. And something that a lot of people aren't aware of is if you go back since 1926, we've had about 14 recessions. Are you aware that that during seven of those 14 recessions that the markets actually went up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But our guest during this portion of the program is uh, Tim Decker. He is the president of ISI Financial Group in Lancaster. If you have a question about the stock market, about investing, uh, not an individual question or an individual stock or anything like that, but overall, broad questions, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. All right. I wanted to talk about the economy in stocks. Mm. Uh, there are, you know, the, the statistics that we have seen over the last few years have been positive with uh, right. the economy. You're talking about earnings. A lot of these earnings, now you're talking about earnings in the stock market, but earnings, individual companies, corporations that uh, people invest in have been going up. Right. Um, Unemployment has gone down. Interest rates have stayed down. Inflation, even though there may be a blip here and there, inflation has stayed down. Overall, the economy is doing very well. So my question is, how much of a barometer is the stock market to a healthy economy? Well, most people would, would tend to believe that there is a high correlation between the economy and the stock market and often it's said that the stock market is a precursor of what you can expect in the economy sometimes that's true but sometimes it's not um the 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 economy is hugely impacted by investor and human sentiment and as we saw i think it was Last week, the University of Michigan came out, and optimism out there right now is at a 13-year high. Optimism in what? Huh? The economy overall? Yes, yes, okay, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Because I, a lot of times we look at consumer confidence, right. but that's having to do with retail and a lot of right, other things. Right, but right. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you have a combination of valuations that are historically a little bit high, but because of low interest rates, they're maybe not as high as what a lot of people think uh, uh, they can be. And then you have optimism, and then you have earnings. And then, remember, we went through two major bear markets in the last decade. And if you go back, again, from a historical standpoint, Historically, it often takes two major bear markets that washes out a lot of the speculators. And I still believe, I still believe that there are many, many investors, especially individual investors, that are still sitting on the sidelines because of the pain that they experienced when we went through either 2000, 2002 or 2007 through 2009. And it's unfortunate, but that's 
And that's how it is. Mm. Yeah, a lot of this, it, it seems as though a lot of it is driven by emotion and sentiment. Absolutely. Uh, when you say there are people sitting on the sidelines, that's hard to believe. Although, you know, I saw this the same article where I saw the headline this morning that it called uh, the market irrational right now. Also said that uh, there are, are, are people out there that are, that there almost are no sellers, that everyone's a buyer. In in this market, well, if that's what the article said, then um, they are inaccurate. Because for every trade, you have to have a buyer and a seller. There is never any such thing as more sellers, and there is buyers, or more buyers, and there is sellers. Um, but but you know the 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 fact is that we heard, we have been hearing. Since '09, since the market has been on its way up and it's been on a surge, do you know how many times there have been headlines similar to one that you're just talking about? Market has to go down. Market has to go down. Is this the next bubble? I mean, well, it, yeah, it's too good to be true. Uh, is what a lot of people say, and it keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And 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 there there are certain things that investors and individuals can do to help avoid getting sucked into either the pessimism or becoming too euphoric, but it's important that that they implement those things. Otherwise, they can become a victim because what we know is one's emotions of fear and greed, hands down, are our single worst enemies. So I have to admit, I don't know if I've ever heard the word euphoric as in the context of this conversation, but <laughs> you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. During this portion of the program, we're talking about the stock market investing with our guest, Tim Decker, who's president of ISI Financial Group in Lancaster. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Uh, just got an email here. It says, as we speak, the Dow is Cresting at twenty two thousand nine eighty nine, about to break the twenty three thousand mark. I mean, what timing, huh? <laughs> what a great time to have our show. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that does work out pretty well. All right, let's take a phone call here from Pat in Harrisburg. Pat has kind of a general question. Pat, what's on your mind? Uh, it's Pam from Harrisburg. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm a very small investor. I've got uh, under a thousand dollars to play with. Uh, I'm always looking for small stocks to invest in. Where should I look and how should I get educated? Thank okay. you. Thank you very much for your call. Sure. Um, first thing I would say is if you're going to invest in small company stocks, the only way that I would even suggest you consider doing so is through a very, very low-cost, no-load, small-cap index type of fund. Vanguard has some excellent small-cap index funds, but I would never, ever, ever recommend that you invest in individual stocks, especially small-cap stocks. Because when you go back and you look at the academic evidence, what you see is not only do the majority of large company stocks 
not even keep up with treasury bills. But when you look at small company stocks, they do even worse. And most of them, as a whole, don't even make it. So I would stay away from small cap stocks. But if you indeed want to invest in that, make sure it complements your overall portfolio. And I would only use low-cost no load index funds. I want to get back to what we were talking about, uh, the stock market being uh, related to the health of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about stock earnings, but as I mentioned, uh, the economic news has been pretty good over the last few years. So companies are doing pretty well. Why then hasn't there been a real big increase in employment, that's number one, or expansion of some of these companies? Well, my my personal guess, okay, and this is obviously a guess, like anyone else's is, but my personal guess is I think there's been a lot of wait and see coming into the new administration as to what is that actually going to mean for business owners. And as we, we know, little by little, there's been some deregulation, um, and, you know, there's talk more and more of that, but I think there has been, seriously, a wait and see. However, you are beginning to see more companies starting to invest and, and, and hire. It just does not happen, you know. As, as quickly, like. and that's yeah, right, that's right, been right. one of the There's signs. Been there. yep. That's been one of the signs of this recession. I say this recession, meaning the two thousand seven, mm-hmm. two thousand eight, the, the Great, Great Recession, recession yep, yep. is that uh, even when the economy started to recover, employment didn't, and salaries, wages didn't. Uh, so maybe, just maybe, here we are almost 10 years later, uh, that where there's some real competition for quality employees out there, maybe wages will start to go up. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's obviously the hope. One good thing is obviously we've seen employment drop substantially from 10 to, you know, down now around 4 um, but I think you're right. I mean, as there is more and more of a demand by employers and fewer and fewer qualified workers out there, it's going to be more important to employers to keep the people that they have. And the only way, obviously, is to incentivize them with more cash. We have an email here from Eric says, the markets continue to increase based on the promises of tax reforms by our president. Should one of the reforms not pass, do you feel as though the market will still increase the earnings? Now, first of all, let me ask about Eric's premise there, sure. that tax reform is one of the drivers of this increase in, in, in stocks. And secondly, if these tax reforms do not get passed, is there an impact on the market? Right. I believe there is some premium built into the market in anticipation of some tax decreases. However, however, I still believe that without that, when you step back and you look at the fact that we have good earnings, interest rates are low, global growth is doing very, very well, I personally do not believe that we would see a major drop. Now, 
That's a pure guess. And as I always like to say, all crystal balls are cloudy. President Trump is taking credit for the good economy, including uh, the, the record gains in the stock market. Should he be? Is he responsible? What, what president wouldn't? <laughs> well, I understand that, but uh, this president has more been more vocal about right, it. Right. Um, I would say that that there that the optimism that we were talking about earlier, whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, the surveys show as recent as last week that the optimism amongst individuals out there is pretty g- good, and when that comes to investing. Individuals, whether it be in their 401k at work or whether it be in their own investments, that is going to have an impact on whether or not they invest. So whether or not that is as a result of Trump, whether or not that's as a result of what's going on globally throughout the world, I don't know. See, this is why why it goes back to my original premise for asking uh, uh, about optimism and uh, the market's growing when there is so much uh, let's face it chaos in 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 the world right now that uh, you know Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure that uh, if you go by the polls it's just over a third of the country that is you know supports what he is he is doing so how does that translate into overall optimism about the markets about the economy well remember the driving engine is capitalism, and capitalism and global capitalism is much, much stronger than who's in the White House. It always has been and it always will. So in spite of the fact that what's all over the news every day, these companies are continuing to produce, they have earnings, and, and that, it, it's... Or one of the most dangerous things that I've seen in my 30-plus years in uh, in this industry is when people even allow, even get close to allowing their politics or what's going on in Washington or what's going on throughout the world to get in the way of how they invest. I can give you example upon example where when people allow that, it ends up backfiring. I remember I I had a had a client and this was uh right when Obama was elected for his second term. I had a client call me up said get me out of the market. I'm like what for? He said a second year a second term of Obama this market is going to get killed. I tried to talk him out of it, tried to remind him, you don't let your politics get in the way of how you invest. In spite of that, he jumped off the cliff, and we know what's happened since then. So, you know, the, 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 the temptation, and we all have this bias, but the temptation to allow what's going on in Washington and that sideshow to have any impact on how you invest is... One of the biggest mistakes, Scott, that people make when it comes to investing. Let's take a phone call sure. from Tim in Westchester. Tim, you're on the air. Uh, yes, thanks so, thanks so much for taking my call. Uh, my question is around uh, next June and what we're hearing the Fed might do uh, in quantitative, uh, quantitative easing. Okay. Um, I would say anything that you hear about what the Fed's going to do, what might not do, 
I would say uh, should not in any way have an impact on how you invest. Remember, markets are very efficient. They're not perfectly efficient, but they are very efficient, which simply means market prices today reflect all known information. And what moves the markets in the short term is the unknowable. So anything that we know or anything that's in the news, that is already reflected in the prices. And more investors have shot themselves in the foot by attempting, again, to make investment decisions based upon what the Fed's doing, what's going on in Washington. So I would not in any way allow what the Federal Reserve Board might do or what they do to have an impact on how you invest. Stephanie in York has an email says, I believe we primarily vote with our dollars. If you're suggesting investing in just large companies, how do you become an ethical investor and still make money? Well, I would never recommend that you invest only in large companies. A diversified, beautiful global portfolio should be inclusive of large cap small cap value growth, many different types. But within that, if you choose to focus on what are called socially responsible companies, there are actual mutual funds out there that focus on that. So I would look for those as an option, but again, I would never, ever advise trying to pick individual stocks. Are there types of stocks that are doing, that are kind of driving uh, this market? Well, up until of late, healthcare was going through the roof. I mean, it was going through the roof. When you look at the Dow Jones, Boeing, up until of late, was carrying the Dow. So, you know, it, it's there, there, there are certain sectors that obviously have done better than others. Financial st- stocks if interest rates continue to slowly go up, they should benefit from that. But again, again, all of that information is known, and I would never recommend that you speculate and try to predict, but instead diversify with a beautiful, beautiful global portfolio. Okay. We only have about uh, 30 seconds left, Tim, Mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, good information here. I've had a number of questions from listeners about uh, using history as a guide. Mm -hmm. When do you foresee this market coming back down? And again, I only have about a minute left. Sure. I have no idea. You have no idea. I nor anyone else does. If If you think that somebody can accurately predict when the market's going to come down, I would say you also are hoping, hoping, hoping. (laughs) Tim Decker is the president of Lancaster Base ISI Financial Group. Tim, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about uh, a real crisis in volunteer firefighters, the number of volunteer firefighters we have here in Pennsylvania. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart.